it's funny you should say that because I've only recently made the connection myself. So I grew up in a very musical family and I play a fair few instruments. Um, and then I realized I've ended up in this bird song world, <laughs> which I thought came from my love of animals, but more recently I've kind of made that link. Like, yeah. oh, it makes sense that I ended up with bird song. Continuing on our ecology strain of the impacts of light at night on the environment. Today, my very special guest is Ashton Dickerson, who again is with University of Melbourne. Maybe, maybe there's a little bit of work happening down there with artificial light at night. Uh, and she has uh, made the headlines. In fact, she made Catalyst, the ABC science show in Australia, where uh, they talked about the impacts of light at night on our urban bird species, in particular, the willy wagtail. So after I'd received several people's comments about I should watch the last three minutes of that episode, I realised I should really be getting her on to discuss her research in, in a little more depth, if only I could talk properly. Um, and this is what this episode is dedicated to. Again, as always, if you have any questions or would like to know more about this research or even have another topic that you'd like me to introduce to the podcast, please email us at marnie at darkskytraveller.com.au and we will get onto that immediately. For more information about Ashton, you can look at our show notes. Thanks again. Hi, with a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? Starfield Sky used to be our evening's entertainment. Now it's Netflix, iPads or even a podcast. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og, and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. Okay, well, we have a TV star today joining us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, at least that's what inspired me to, to invite you onto the show, Ashton. Ashton Dickerson, a university student at the University of Melbourne, who is, well, are you still a PhD candidate with Dr. Teresa Jones or have you progressed since your bio page was updated on the website? I have actually just finished my PhD, so that's really exciting Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, so I'm not quite sure what the next thing will be yet, but I'm hoping to stay in the field of artificial light at night, so we'll see where I end up. Yeah, interesting, because it's a bit of a time for change in Australia. I think we're starting to really understand that light is an, is an influence on the environment. And maybe we can touch on that a little bit as we, as we go through. But yeah, interesting. Oh, well, congratulations on your achievements so far. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. And as I said, you were on TV, which not one, not two, but about 30 people contacted me to say, did you see the episode of Catalyst with the Willy Wagtails? So perhaps maybe we start at the end. How did you, how did that, how did that come about? How did you get on Catalyst? What, yeah. Well, I, uh, so I did my undergraduate degree in zoology and at the time I just had this love for animals. Um, but it was sort of during that time I started taking notice of birds as well. And of course, the willy wagtail is a particularly charismatic and really interesting bird species. 
So there's a, they're this small bird and they've kind of got the attitude of a really big bird. They're it's true, they really yeah. aggressive. They've got this angry little eyebrows and this angry little chattering they do when they feel threatened. But there's this super interesting folk story that's been around forever, as far as I could tell, that they sing more at night during a full moon. So that's one of their really interesting behaviours. They're there, this daytime species, but they sing at night during the summer. But the thing that I thought was cool about that was even if you would go on Wikipedia or any other website, it would say that they sing more at night during a full moon, but no one had actually ever recorded mm. that. Mm. So that was kind of the basis of my entire project. We decided to actually test if that was true. And so what drew you to that in the first place? Did you have a willy wagtail in your own backyard or was it just, you know, was there a bird that getting caught your attention one day or was it just just the folklore that you'd heard? I think it's just conversations with colleagues. You know, we, I was in this bird world already. I'd done some mm. research with fairy wrens. We were sort of talking about what kind of other research we could be doing. That's when I met Teresa Jones and she's obviously in the realm of artificial light at night. And I was working with Michelle Hall, who works a lot with birdsong. So mm. discussions that kind of all came together that we thought, well, wow, we could test some of these questions and start to understand how light at night does actually affect this behavior and whether it affects them at all. Um, so yeah, my research was a bit of natural history, learning a bit more about willy wagtails and that nocturnal singing behavior, but also seeing whether there's these relationships with light at night, both natural and artificial. So moonlight and then onto our artificial mm -hmm. light at night. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, you've decided to do this. What steps did you have to put into place to start your, your research? There was a lot of nocturnal field work. There's a lot of dedication there. But, <laughs> so I think first I spent time in the field actually starting to get familiar with this behaviour. And one of my favourite memories was out at Serendip Sanctuary, which is just west of Melbourne. I was out there. There's a population of willy wagtails. and it was the first time I'd actually heard this nocturnal singing from Willy Wagtails in person, but there it's this sort of like little nature reserve. So it's quite untouched and there's a lot of Willy Wagtails there. And it was just amazing. They all just erupted in song together. You could hear it everywhere in the middle of the night. It was such a cool experience and it is mm -hmm. a really interesting behavior. And was it with the full moon? Did you say? Back then I can't remember on that night. That was my first night. Thinking mm -hmm. about it now, it probably was because it was really extraordinary and I got super lucky on that night to mm -hmm. hear them all singing at once. Yeah, it was quite likely that it was a full moon. Yeah. So I used to live in a house that had willy wagtails all along the back fence and we would experience this night, beautiful night call and it would go for hours actually mm -hmm. till, till I think until dawn. I'm just curious, you, you said there were a lot of birds there I think we only had one or two, maybe a couple. I'm not sure. Mm. My question is, was it chorus as in were they all sort of singing together the same thing or were they just making noise? Yeah. Yeah. You know, their own song at different times. Yeah. Yeah. So I found that they do actually tend to sing in choruses. Mm -hmm. But like you've said, in some areas they can be more sparse. So at this one particular field site, I was monitoring, say, 30 different willy wagtail territories. So there were a lot there and they would all start to sing at the same time. In fact, there was at one period of my research, I was doing playback experiments, which is where ah. you broadcast a song from a speaker and then you can measure the response from the birds. 
I would find that if I played these songs at night, it could actually start a chorus. So if I was on a particular territory, that bird would start singing, then the neighbours would start singing and you could see it spread through the population, which is really quite astounding. But, yeah, when you're in areas such as more suburban areas that are a bit more built up, you might might only have one or two willy wagtails around, so you might not notice that chorusing so much. Yeah. So brought up an interesting point there, and we haven't actually discussed the, your your findings in your research, <laughs> but... I wonder if that's a tool then that could bring back species to an area. So if you were playing chorus or song, you know, in more urban areas or peri-urban areas, would I wonder if that's a, a tool that could help bring them back? I mean, obviously they need the right environment as well. but Yeah, well, it's an interesting idea, but we find with these sort of playback experiments, well, the basic functions of birdsong, broadly territory defence and mate attraction. So generally, if we're doing these sort of playback experiments, we might be trying to record a territorial response. And if we were using it for mate attraction, we might bring some birds to the area. Maybe if we're playing a male song, we might bring females to the area. But if there's no suitable habitat or if there's no actual birds that are already there to form these pairs, they might not establish in those areas. Plus, yeah. you would need nearby populations. But it's yeah. an interesting idea. Yeah, well, I'm just always trying to find a way of bringing back <laughs> the natural environment. <laughs> so um, I, I should think- say with these playback experiments, it's not something we encourage people to go out and do just for fun because it can be a bit stressful for the birds. We do this under controlled conditions where we're testing mm-hmm. specific questions as well. Yeah, I know the, the rigors of ethics around science and ex- ex- experiments like this are quite quite detailed definitely yeah oh definitely I've recorded nests in the past and I need ethics approval simply just put a camera near a nest you know so everything's taken very seriously and thought through makes me think about all these places that have cameras next to these poor poor birds nesting in churches and things and they have lights on them so that everybody can see what's happening all the time yep they, yeah i think that goes through ethics control that doesn't <laughs> it's different when it's used for research then everything's careful but unfortunately yeah. sometimes people do things that may not be super responsible and they can get away yeah. with that a little bit <laughs> yeah i guess there's a benefit in that that makes people curious about animal wildlife but definitely yep. yeah especially in city areas where people can be a little bit disconnected from nature so things like the camera on the fel- uh, the peregrine falcons yeah. that are nesting that nests at collins street that's awesome an awesome way for people to get kind of feel connected to nature and realize that we're not just in our cities and we're not co-inhabiting with wildlife we yeah. are very much sharing this environment with wildlife as well yeah and that is actually one of my questions which I'll get to later is you know why actually you know let's talk about it now because we're here mm-hmm. is you know should we just try and save the bush the rural and regional yeah. areas you know is we know at least I've read that, you know some huge amount of wildlife exists in our urban areas and, and I guess this is an example the woolly wagtail so yeah yeah definitely I think Cities do take up a large proportion of the landscape and we can't deny that that's only going to get bigger. And there is a lot of wildlife in the cities, as you say, there's a lot more than people actually realise. So I think we should make an effort to try and maintain some kind of natural environment. And there are fairly simple steps that we can take towards creating these dark refuges and dark corridors. 
But I think the other thing from like a more human point of view is that, as I've already mentioned, there is quite a disconnect with people and nature, especially when you live in city for a long time. But darkness itself is nature and anything we can do to reduce the sort of amount of light pollution and bring back the stars, that is a way that people can uh, feel more connected to nature. Uh, Yeah, and part of the planet, you know, this is the planet we live on and it kind of puts things into perspectives when you see the stars and realise how small we are. Yeah, it takes away the commercial drive and even the, I've actually just been writing a paper myself this morning on the psychological benefits of the night sky and yeah, there's the calming impact and the fact that we re- remove ourselves from the commercial environment. But there's also the, the sense of just how small we are and how, and so that could, that could be overwhelming, but it's not. For some reason, it just puts us back in our place and makes us realise that, you know, we're all a little bit fat or a little bit ugly or a little bit <laughs> in that shroud of darkness. We could be in a group of people that nobody can stand there and judge and say, oh, my goodness, look at her hair, you know. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and, and even the fact that we're using the senses more to guide us through that experience. So we're not mm-hmm. using sight, which is, you know, I think one that we fall back back on quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so tell us that you were in the Serendip Sanctuary. Yep. Is that completely free of artificial light at night? So in terms of street lights or localised sources of light, it's very dark, but it does have some exposure to sky glow from Lara and Geelong and Melbourne, which are all nearby. So yes and no. It has some light pollution, but fairly low levels. Yeah. And you said you were there during a full moon on mm-hmm. this first night experience. Okay. Yep. So then, so then what, what happens? What's part two of your, your research and what do you find? So... <clears throat> Essentially what I did was I started with the natural light, as I mentioned. So I recorded not only at Serendip Sanctuary, but also at four others, sorry, three other sites across Victoria. So I recorded right out west near Horsham and right out east over near the Mornington Peninsula in these dark areas with this minimal light pollution. So by recording across entire lunar cycles, so from the new moon through to the full moon, I was able to extract the data. I used audio recording units that I would put out on trees for the entire lunar lunar month. Looking at when willy wagtails sing and how often they sing, I found that they were more likely to sing and they sang more often during these full moons. So I did actually see this positive relationship with the amount of natural light at night and willy wagtails nocturnal singing behavior. And then from there, this is when we started to think about how artificial light might affect this because you may, I'm sure you know that artificial light can be more than 30 times brighter than a full moon, these areas that are exposed to this sky glow. So here we had to make some hypotheses. We'd already seen that natural light at night increases this nocturnal singing behavior. So at first we thought maybe they'd sing even more in these really bright areas, Hmm. but by recording from really urban areas, from say the centre of Melbourne and comparing this to my really dark sites, we actually found that artificial light at night seems to suppress this nocturnal singing behaviour in willy wagtails. So it's a little bit surprising at first. Hmm. But I think what this comes down to is visibility. Uh So, yeah, so when we've got 
when we're in a dark area and there's a new moon, it's very dark. And then that means as we go throughout the lunar cycle, that provides a source of light, which means that animals are able to see better at night. So I think what's happening is in dark areas, as the moonlight increases, willy wagtails may be more able to fly around at light at night, potentially. They may be able to communicate more visually. So they may be more, they may be interacting more during this night when there's a full moon because they have that opportunity thanks to the light. But then if you think about a willy wagtail in a city area, visibility is not a problem anymore, of course. Because as I've mentioned, it's up to 30 times brighter than a full moon. Mm-hmm. So for willy wagtails that are in these areas, the moon doesn't affect how well they're able to fly around or see each other at night, but instead it might affect how much dark area there is left in the city. So mm-hmm. if we have these dark refuges, which might be important for willy wagtails, uh, they might disappear once we've got the full moon. Why? What's the benefit of the darkness for for willy wagtails in in region in rural areas? What? Why would? Why is that? Why would they need the moonlight to be triggered? What's What's the difference between mm-hmm. the rural and the urban areas? Yeah. Yeah. So in our rural areas, this is where we see that willy wagtails are more likely to sing with increasing moonlight. So if we think about the function of birdsong, one of the functions can be mate attraction. There's this interesting behavior in the bird world. Um, it's called extra pair mating. So while a lot of birds are socially monogamous, meaning that a male and a female will pair together and they'll defend a territory together, sometimes they'll sneak off and they may mate with their neighbor, their neighbors or other birds in the area. So they can be a bit cheeky. But of course, your partner doesn't necessarily want you sneaking off to mate with another bird (laughs) obvious reasons but also uh so for a male that means they may be raising another male's chicks which is not in their interest Uh, and for a female they want the male at home protecting their territory investing the energy in their own chicks so basically neither neither bird or the partner wants to get caught sneaking off so the females sneak off as well yeah so It varies, but males and females <laughs> do this depending on the species. <laughs> but the reason this is relevant is that because neither pair member wants to get caught, some species have been seen doing these extra pair matings in the middle of the night. So mm-hmm. they sneak off at night the cover so they don't of darkness. Get under the cover of darkness. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think what's happening in the Willy Wagtails world, because um, we have seen that they have this extra pair mating. We know this from genetic analysis that we did during my research. Willy wagtails are probably doing this at night because that's a fairly common thing we see in the bird world. But these are diurnal species. So they're used to bright environments and they can't fly around easily at nights. We think that they're more likely doing this on those brighter nights, such as during a full moon, right? Mm -hmm. So that all comes back to singing because singing is a great way to advertise your quality, say your body size, your sex, your um, um, your fitness overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, so during these brighter nights when birds are likely to be sneaking around, this is when we see increased nocturnal song behavior. And it's only the males that sing at night, which is something that's quite important for this whole hypothesis because the females do sing as well, but only during the day. But at night, we've just got our males. So I'm thinking what happens 
on these brighter night, nights, the females may be moving around and the males are calling, trying to attract these extra pair Mm -hmm. matings. Mm -hmm. But it also has a double function then of mate guarding, we call it. So if there's a male on a territory and he's singing lots, that may make it more likely that his own female is going to stick around near him. So if she's comparing his song to the neighbor's song to the other neighbor's song, if he's putting in heaps of effort, she might just decide it's best that she stays there as well. So he's it, not just singing, I'm watching you. I'm watching yeah. you. <laughs> A little bit of both. So that maybe. <laughs> so it's potentially yeah, advertising to bring females over to him, but also mm-hmm. to try and guard his own mate to keep her on the territory um so this behavior all links back to moonlight because it means that visibility is important you're listening to dark sky conversations with marnie Ong. we'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors So then you move yes. into the urban area and you've got like 20, you know, 24 seven, seven days a week, no dark yep. corridors. Yep. How is this impacting the Willy Wagtail? Yeah. So this behavior, we think it's important to sing more when you're more likely to be seen and in dark areas, that's during a full moon, then that is essentially gone once mm-hmm. you move into these urban areas. Cause at this mm-hmm. point, visibility is no longer an issue. But instead, what we do have in the cities is a different issue, and that can be a change in predator composition. These are one of the things that's often correlated with increasing artificial light at night is just increasing levels of urbanization in general. And when we have increasing urbanization, we see a change in the predator community to more cats, more foxes. So all of a sudden, it's a lot more dangerous to be singing at night. So Mm. now, instead of brightness being important, our darkness becomes important, right? So we need these little pockets of dark trees or dark corridors or dark refuges within the cities. And what we're thinking is as the full moon increases brightness at night, that might take away some of those few remaining Mm -hmm. refuges. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we actually see the opposite effect that willy wagtails less likely to sing in brighter areas at night when it's artificially bright beyond those natural levels. So it's sort of the, we have the opposite Mm -hmm. relationship depending on the light at night, which is really interesting. And I think it's a really good example too of how natural light and artificial light at night can interact to affect animals differently, Mm -hmm. which I think is an important message given that people often when they're doing this sort of research, just focus on the artificial light at night and not always consider the lunar cycle as, um, and mm. what effect that may be having on the relationship as well. It's a really interesting piece of research. So I think the question is then what, if any, um, impact does that have on the species that are living in cities? Are, are there f- a few? I mean, are there fewer of them because they just don't have the environment to live there? If there are fewer, there might be more. I don't know. You know, have you done any more have you seen any, have you any observations as to the numbers or the, you know, the number of birds being hatched and, you know, all those sorts of correlating questions? Yeah. Mm. So with my research was largely exploratory. This is a very new behavior that we're, well, not a new behavior, but it's something that we've only just started to examine. So there is still a lot of those sort of questions about the actual impacts that this then has. But 
given that willy wagtails are still in our urban areas and we see them in suburban parks, you see them in the middle of Melbourne, there's some in Docklands, as we saw in the Catalyst episode, that suggests to us that these birds are, willy wagtails are able to cope with this artificial light at night, but instead it just could potentially be causing these population level differences in behavior. Mm. But when we think about some other bird species, you can see some more direct fitness effects. And I think the best example of that is light traps where Mm -hmm. if there's spotlights going up into the sky, for example, sometimes you'll see birds stuck in them flying around literally to the point of exhaustion where they'll fall to their death. So we do see those really direct impacts of artificial light at night on some bird species too. That's particularly obvious with the World Towers, isn't it? The, yeah, the yes. The World Towers in New York, I think they have to turn it off for 15 minutes every hour. Mm-hmm. I think it's two hours and then they turn them off to let the birds escape and then they turn them back on. It's really quite astounding. But we are there is some fairly recent evidence on how artificial light at night can affect sleep behaviour in birds as well. So there may be these more subtle effects we have on overall fitness and the health of bird species. We see light can cause birds to sleep less and have more interrupted sleep. And of course, sleep's very important. So Mm. those indirect effects could really build up and potentially have fitness effects as well. I remember reading, and I'm always a bit vague on detail, I'm afraid, but there was a study done on, I think it was sparrows in in America. Mm. And they were basically dropping out of the, the trees with Nile virus and they put a number of birds in different areas. Some were naturally lit, some were artificially lit and some were a variety of both. Anyway, the birds that had this virus, basically, of course, the ones in the artificially lit seven times, took seven times longer to get over the virus or, or, or perished than the ones that were in naturally lit environments. And, you know, it makes sense. If you put somebody in a hospital and you put bright lights on them and never let them sleep, they're probably not going to recover that quickly either. So. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, sleep's so important for so many things, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wondered to reading a little bit about you was, do you think the bird song aspect of this was driven by your love of music? Hmm. I, you know, that's funny you should say that because I've only recently made the connection myself so I grew up in a very musical family and I play a fair few instruments um and then I realized I've ended up in this bird song world (laughs) which I thought came from my love of animals but more recently I've kind of made that link like oh it makes sense that I ended up with bird song (laughs) I think the thing is you never really once you've got a skill I don't think it ever goes unused yeah back at some stage and you never really know when yeah, so it's interesting. interesting. Yeah, it is funny, these connections. I guess, <laughs> I guess, yeah, music's obviously one of my interests. So mm. combine so, my loves. It makes me think about the, you know, there's a big movement, particularly in the States, and something that I'm trying to sort of bring into some nighttime tourism aspects is this, this soundscape mm-hmm. and how that's interrupted with our day-night cycles and, and, you know, what else is out there in the bush. So have you, in your studies and research, discovered any other birds or any other bird song that may be similar? Not similar to the Willy Wagtail in, in its characteristics, but in its uh, reasoning and what your hypothetical reasoning, you know, is that it's there. Um, it's quite interesting, actually, when you think of 
birds that sing at night and how that interacts with light at night, I feel like I tend to see one of two patterns from all the literature that I've read. Uh, It's not even just birds. If you think about acoustic signaling, basically at night, mammals, insects, birds, um, and how that relates to light at night, you have species that will increase their activity with light. So during a full moon, which is what I saw with the willy wagtails, um, generally, again, it all comes back to visibility. They're able to interact. They're moving around more. They're doing more. So they're communicating more. Um, And then you have species which do the opposite, which will increase their acoustic communication when it's darker at night. So example of that would be the coyote. They hunt in groups and they howl to each other. And then much more vocal howl during in, dark nights. They don't howl in the full moon. They howl in the new moon. Uh, yep, it's the opposite with coyotes. It's mm. funny, actually, Um, the whole werewolves howling at the full moon. That's Wolves don't relate to the lunar cycle at all. So I've always said the willy wagtails are more like a werewolf <laughs> than, a, than a wolf is. But, yeah, so you have that group of species that, increases their communications as it's brighter and they can see what they're doing. And you have a big group of species that are more likely to call at night or communicate at night when it's dark because then they can't see each other. So they use other forms of communication. Yeah. Mm. And, and for me, it's really important to get people out into those experiences to see that and hear it. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and any, any sort of learning in my mind is bit, must be much better done when you can actually mm-hmm. see or emotionally experience it rather than just reading about it. Yeah, I think a really great example of that too is interestingly when we first went into lockdown here in Melbourne early 2020. You only got out last week. (laughs) Gosh, it was a long time. There seemed to be an increase in the amount of people noticing that magpies will also sing at night. All of a sudden started getting these emails from people saying, oh, have you noticed that magpies sing at night? I don't know if it's because people were spending a lot more time at home. I don't know, just tuning into their environment a bit more. But yeah, yeah, magpies are a really good example that people are generally quite familiar with, but you can hear them warbling at night. We don't know if that relates to the full moon or artificial light at night, but it's another interesting one of those behaviours that could be explored further. So Um, you talk about that. What and you don't know what you're up to next, but what do you, what would you like to see happen in this space, whether it's with you or other people, you know, research is done to to educate the environment, you know, environment policy makers, et cetera, mm-hmm. the general community. So what should we be doing next? Yeah, I actually am working casually. I forgot to mention as an environmental consultant with the company Ironbark Sustainability. Um, And one of the things they have done historically is they'll do audits of council street lighting assets and then give advice on how they can improve their technology. But they're starting to move into an area of not just thinking about energy consumption to be environmentally friendly, but also environmental impacts of street lighting at night. So the sort of things that we're thinking about or that Ironbark is recommending is basically to be thoughtful about where we use light. Is the light really necessary? How bright does it need to be? When does it need to be on? And a lot of new lighting technology has smart cells. So the the dimming of light is capable and timers of lighting is capable, um, is a possibility, sorry. 
So if we think about where we need the lights, when we need the lights and combine that with sensors, we can create lighting environments that turn on as they're needed and then the impact is reduced as they're not needed. So all these little changes can make a really big difference. So that is one of the nice things about light pollution when we consider that compared to something like chemical pollution. Mm-hmm. Light pollution is relatively easy to fix. You know, it's more... We need a cultural shift into acknowledging that our darkness is important and we need people to want the darkness so mm. that we can bring that into our cities and have these better night environments that are more natural. Funny you said that cultural shift. It's exactly what I was, if you hadn't said it, I would have said it. it's about mm-hmm, changing mm-hmm. cultures. It's about changing yep. behaviours and, 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 and making it an asset. You know, we take it for granted. And I think Australians in particular take darkness for granted because we actually live in a fairly dark continent and mm. we can still go and see the stars. And the fact that we have to drive maybe two, three hours to do it isn't great, but there's an enormous amount of expanse that we've got. And even my my, my local area, my council is actually fairly dark. Mm-hmm. You know, I can see the Milky Way from pretty much every street in my suburb. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually grew up in country Victoria out near Horsham, which is four hours west of Melbourne. So I think that's one of the reasons that like I like the night so much and Mm. I did get those beautiful stars at night and I have friends that lived out of town near Horsham so where it's really, really dark. The stars are absolutely amazing and it's one of the things I've missed since moving to Melbourne is you don't get that stunning pristine night sky like you do out there. I think that might be one of the other reasons that people don't always think about it. Because if you're born in a city and you grow up in a city, then you don't really know anything different. This feels mm. natural, but it's not natural at all. And that's evidenced by the fact that people go out to the country and go, wow, you know, yeah. amazing. <laughs> Actually, it's always, it's just hidden by pollution. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And I think like one of the other things that I think is interesting about light pollution is, well, firstly, it's not necessarily the first thing people think about if they think about pollution from cities mm-hmm. they think about chemical pollution or air pollution but water pollution, light pollution, water mm-hmm. pollution but light pollution itself is actually so pervasive because it has this ability to spread so much further than its source with sky glow basically any upwelling light can be spread in the atmosphere away from the cities and because of that it means that some areas that aren't yet touched by any form of urbanization, say there's no land clearing yet or there's no development, they might still be exposed to that light pollution through sky glow. Mm. So it's really Mm. interesting. And I don't think people realize like how far spread this form of pollution really is. No. One of the things that I mention in my talks, if I give them publicly, is, you know, one of the issues is is that it doesn't burn you. It doesn't smell. You can't touch it. You know, it doesn't stick to you or feel oppressive. And all it actually does is make us feel better. You know, psychologically, we feel happier if we've got light. Uh, We feel safer. You know, the Bible says the good light, you know, all these, you know. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, there's bad light too, so. Yeah, yeah, it's funny because I've never thought about it like that. That's a good way to put it. Mm. That's interesting because, you know, it does have these effects on our sleep and it can affect you know, our immune system and it has all these subtle effects that mm. may not 
be super obvious, but they are really important effects. You're right. It's not smelly or feels yuck or anything. So people don't really think about it. But it is just as as plastic or an oil spill on the ocean is Mm -hmm. changing that, that water. That's exactly, that's how I correlate it. You know, diesel on water is like light in in a nighttime environment. It just shouldn't be there basically. Yeah. And it can spread and spread and impact so many different layers of the ecology. Yeah. Yeah. So one last quick question because we, uh, I'd love to know, you mentioned Horsham. Is there one particular nighttime experience that really stands out? I ask all our guests so there's usually one that really sort of stands out. Oh gosh, I think for me, I'm just spoilt because I did grow up in the country. Isn't that nice? yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think, yeah, I, my grandparents lived in Nadimuk, which is a really small town near Horsham. And I would, every time I would go there, I would go out the back and look at the stars, but I think yeah. I might just be a bit spoiled. I don't yeah. think I do have one particular time. I've just always appreciated the spots stars when Mm -hmm. I was young and take any opportunity I can to try and have a good look at the sky when I am somewhere that isn't exposed to light pollution yeah and and let me ask you this question because this is what happens for me is that when I because I'm a bit the same I remember my grandfather driving me Mm -hmm. to stay at their house you know as a little kid and I probably got picked up at six o'clock at night by the time we got to their house it was pitch black in winter and he'd carry me to the car through the car to, to the bedroom and every time I'm in a dark sky experience, there's a little little short fleeting memory of me being carried by my granddad in this dark space. You know, it was just a whole experience of going to my grandparents and knowing that this was, you know, I was going to have a good time. But that emotional security as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Very wholesome. (laughs) (laughs) I think I have similar memories, though. I would lie on the yard at my Nana's outside and look at the stars. You know, this is a tiny town with nothing around. And I do think really fondly back on those memories. And I hope that everyone gets to experience those sort of nights and how beautiful the the night sky is when it's not affected by light pollution just so lovely and humbling you know you realize how big the universe is that we're here on our planet I love the stars <laughs> yeah well I think that's a really nice note to end on so <laughs> I'm going to encourage everybody to look at your University of Melbourne web page and and perhaps add any comments or questions they have your way because I'm sure there'll be lots mm-hmm. encourage them to take that last three minutes of of catalyst and I don't have the episode, but I'll put it in the, in the episode notes so that people can. Urban birds. Yeah, it was fabulous. And obviously reached a really lot of number of people and their hearts as well because they made sure I knew about it. And I wish <laughs> I'm you all so the happy best. to hear that. <laughs> and I wish you all the very best with the next endeavours and, and what whatever comes your way because I'm sure you've got a huge career. And please keep up the work. We need scientists like you to do more and more research on urban light and how it impacts our environment. So thank you. Thanks thank for Thank you so today. much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.